I started a series called Restoring the Image of God. How many of you remember that, that first sermon titled along the same lines as the series title, Restoring the Image of God? You know, it's a funny thing. We uh, <clears throat> pray here almost every morning, and l last Saturday, just yesterday, uh, I came running in or racing in to the prayer meeting. I was a couple of minutes late, anxious to get here, and I threw my shirt on. I had a t-shirt on and threw a shirt on as I got out of the car, and I come in, and <clears throat> I walk down the aisle, and everyone's looking at me, and they're going, whoa, what did we do? We're in trouble because I'm holding a belt in my hand. <laughs> and I thought, isn't that interesting? I forgot to put my belt on and I had it in my hand because I was in such a hurry. And everyone's making a comment about, uh-oh, what's going to happen today? And then one by one, they started to laugh, and everyone's sharing stories about their childhood. And who has any stories or memories about your childhood and belts? Anybody? Yeah. Isn't it amazing how we project images from scars or moments in our life and sometimes we project those images onto authority figures, and sometimes we project those images onto God as well. And so <clears throat> I'm going to continue this series on restoring the image of God, and obviously that image of a belt resonated with all of you. Last week I made a very important point, and I labored this point, and it's this. That God ordained the principle that when he created man, man would be created to reflect the glorious image of God. And I made a comment that principles are always true. They could be used for noble purposes or ignoble purposes. They can be used for good. A principle can be used for evil. But God said, let us make man in our image. <clears throat> and man was created and reflected the glory, the majesty, the splendor of God, the goodness of God. And Lucifer, being envious in his heart, said, I need to wreck this picture. I need to alter this picture. I need to repaint this canvas. And so he gets into the garden and he gets into Adam and Eve's head. And from their head, he gets into their heart. It starts with a seed in our thoughts, and it grows into the roots, into our emotions. And then we make decisions. We make judgments. We come to conclusions. And if we don't balance those conclusions with the truth, we're in deception. My title this morning is called The Judgment You Make is often the judgment or the sentence you wear. The judgment you make is often the sentence that you wear. 
And you see, <clears throat> Satan understood that because it was God's divine principle that every kind, every seed would reproduce after its kind, that when God said, let us make man in our image, that it was God's intention to fill the earth with an unfallen man that reflected the beauty, the goodness, the patience, the kindness, the graciousness of God. And so Lucifer decided in his heart, if I can paint a negative picture of God in the mind of Adam and Eve, I could get them to mutiny against their creator, and as they submit to me, they will become a fallen creature no longer reflecting the image of a perfect God, but now reflecting the image of my fallen nature. And Adam and Eve surrendered. They submitted to the lies, to the bogus thoughts. Just a side note. Every one of us have been recipients of gossip. And the reason why the Bible speaks very strongly against gossip especially in the church, but in life in general, is that gossip will destroy you. In the book of Proverbs, it says that uh, the, the writer says, I heard gossip, and it was sweet. It was a sweet morsel in my mouth. You ever notice the tabloids always sell well? It was a sweet morsel in my mouth, but when I swallowed it, it was bitter in my belly. You see, the problem with gossip is that Lucifer came to Adam and Eve. Gossip is when you're talking about someone but not talking to the person concerned. Hello, everybody? Are you with me? Gossip is when you're talking about someone but you're not going to the person concerned. You go to other people. And Lucifer didn't go to God. He went to Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve received the gossip. What would have happened if they took that information, that twisted, distorted argument, and came back to the father and said, Dad, I got a question. Lucifer keeps saying this, this, and this about you. What's the truth? Do you know that if they had have dealt with the gossip, and gone back to the person concerned, they never would have been subject to the sentence of the judgment they came to. They made a judgment about God and never went back to him to authenticate it. And oftentimes we come to conclusions, we come to uh, opinions, we come to judgments about God. And everything needs to come back to what the word of God says because that's the only thing that is always the truth. Can I get an amen? amen. Absolutely. I want to share a story with you. Uh, uh, and by the way, uh, in conclusion to last week, I said when Satan caused Adam and Eve to fall and they had a fallen nature, now rather than reflecting the glory of God, as humanity interacted with humanity, they projected their brokenness onto the image of God. Satan understood the power of this principle, and he reversed it and used it for 
unknowable purposes. And he tries to do the same thing with you and me. And our interactions in life with one another will often leave us in a bittered, dizzied state, confused or misunderstanding the character and the nature of God. I want to share one instance that is written in the Old Testament just to give you a a platform to work from scripturally. And then I want to share personal experiences, how the enemy affected my image of God through the broken interactions of relationships that I had with people around me. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 18. And in Genesis chapter 18, starting from verse 1 to 3, it says, the Lord... And in, the, uh, in your Bible, it's actually spelt capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And whenever the word Lord is spelt all in capitals, the Hebrew word behind that is Yahweh. And so Yahweh appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre, where while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. We go on to the next verse and it says, Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. Now I want you to take note. Yahweh appears to Abraham and talks and Abraham looks up and sees three standing individuals. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. Now in verse 3, Abraham said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, singular. So Yahweh speaks to Abraham, and Abraham looks up and sees three individuals. And then he refers to them as Lord capital L, lowercase o, lowercase r, lowercase d, and he addresses them singularly. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, singularly. Here's a very interesting pointing to the fact that God, Elohim, is a compound plural God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit said, let us make man in our image. Amen. Powerful truth. Just a a little nugget of some of the things that we go deeper in when we're teaching in Bible college. But for today's sermon purpose, we're going to skip down to verse 9. And in verse 9 to verse 15, we're going to find the meat of this story that relates to every one of us that breathe air on planet Earth. Okay? In verse 9, where is your wife Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, Abraham said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent which was behind him. 
Abraham. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I'm worn out, and my Lord, this is referring to Abraham, and it is lowercase l, and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Very interesting. God heard Sarah laugh in the tent. Sarah, the Bible tells us, was barren and all these years was never able to produce uh, offspring for Abraham. And yet, somewhere in the middle of their lives, God had prophesied that Sarah would bear a child to Abraham, bear a son, and God would make a great nation out of their seed. And so Abraham and Sarah over the years had uh, obviously stood on the promise of God and did everything they had to do in the natural, but with no results. Now Sarah comes to the conclusion, you got to be kidding me. you got to be joking. Now that I'm technically past the age of being capable of having a child, forget the fact that I was barren from the get-go, and now that Abraham is definitely showing the signs of wearing out, now I'm going to have that pleasure? And Sarah laughs in the tent. Verse 13, Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? You see, God starts to reason with Sarah, and we'll see that in the next verse. Let's go to the next verse. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? We come to conclusions about the will of God. We come to conclusions about the nature of God. We come to conclusions about the promises of God, and sometimes they don't line up with God. And so here's Sarah. She's hearing the promise yet again. And in her heart, she laughs, and God hears it and makes a note of it and questions why she's laughing and then reasons with her. What's the issue? Do you honestly believe that I don't have the power to perform something simple like this? He said, I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. I want to make an observation here because even that last verse points out a negative image that Sarah had deep down in her heart about the character of God. You see, we lie when we're in error because we're afraid of the consequences. And when you follow this story through, you know what the consequences were? Sarah became pregnant. You see, she had an image of God that was going to judge her. 
She had an image of God who was going to come down on her with a ton of bricks. She had an image that now she's really going to be told. And so she lies. And she said, I didn't laugh. Can you imagine lying to God who knows every thought that ever goes through our mind? And Sarah laughs. And she lies and says, I didn't laugh. And all of that is the result of having fostered a negative image of God. And so my question is, why did Sarah have such a negative picture of God? When it comes to a promise so wonderful, like you will conceive a seed, and not only will you have a son, but this son and your seed will be the lineage of a great nation, one has to ask themselves honestly, what was it in Sarah's heart? What was it in her experience of life? What was it in her interaction with fellow humanity that something projected a negative image onto the image of God? And I can't give you that answer definitively but I can give you some things that the Bible shows us and points to. I love the fact that the best way to get the whole truth out of the word of God is that you have to be a bit of a sleuth. You have to dig into the word of God to get the meat of the word of God. And God says, blessed are those who hunger and who thirst. And I find the more I dig into God's word, the more I come up with fascinating, interesting, revelation things I've never seen before, let alone put together and packaged in a sermon. And so I asked myself, what did Sarah experience? What did she go through that she had such a negative image of God? Did you know that in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham was traveling along with his wife, and he comes into the land of Egypt, and Pharaoh hears news of this beautiful woman that is escorting Abraham. And so he sends a delegation and inquires of Abraham, who is this beautiful woman at your side. And Abraham fears for his life, and he lies about his wife and says, she is my sister. Genesis chapter 12. And uh, he gives Sarah over to Pharaoh that his life would be spared. Very interesting. I think about this and I think, what would Sarah have thought and what would Sarah have felt? And I think every woman in this room right now could start pinning experiences from your childhood to a situation like this. And Sarah probably started to conclude in her mind, I am dispendable. The only one God is interested in in this equation is Abraham. What a, what a rat bag of my husband Obviously, I'm not worth dying for. I guess if God's going to keep his promise, he could keep it with Abraham. He doesn't need me. And God was literally upset and angry with Abraham that Abraham did this. 
And he causes Pharaoh to have nightmares. And finally, Pharaoh goes to Abraham and says, why is it that since I brought your sister into my palace, I'm troubled in my dreams? And then Pharaoh finds out the truth that Sarah was Abraham's wife. And Pharaoh tells him what for, and so he should have. Can I get an amen from the ladies in the crowd? And can I get an amen from the men in the crowd? Absolutely. What I find interesting about this, Kathy, is that this is Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 16, Sarah comes to a conclusion about her experience, and obviously I'm expendable. God doesn't need me. Abraham doesn't think I'm an equal part of this equation. And honestly, the truth, the reality is the opposite because God had already told Abraham and Sarah that he would change their names to mean that there would be a father and a mother of many nations. But she came to a conclusion based on a human interaction that left her hurt, wounded, disappointed, and confused. Genesis 12. Genesis 16. Sarah still isn't giving birth. And she turns to Abraham. She makes a judgment. All right? In Genesis 12, she comes to a conclusion. She comes to a belief system. She comes to her philosophy about men, maybe, and about God, possibly. And in Genesis chapter 16, she still hasn't conceived seed, let alone bear a son. And she turns to Abraham, and she says, why don't you sleep? with my handmaiden, maybe God will fulfill the promise through her. And she believed the lie that she was not the significant other. She believed the lie that she didn't have a destiny in the calling of God. She believed the lie that she was less than. I want to tell you, church, every one of us knows that the devil is the accuser of the brethren. He will constantly lie to us and put us down and rub us in the dirt. But he is not only the accuser of the brethren, he is the accuser of God. He will accuse us to our face and he will accuse God to anyone who will listen. And Sarah made a judgment. She came to a conclusion and we see that that was obviously part of what affected her in chapter 16 of God's gonna fulfill the promise then maybe he'll do it through my handmaiden. And she took herself out of the picture that God wanted to paint. You see, the judgment you make often will be the sentence you wear. She allowed a negative human interaction in her mind to paint her outside of the picture of God's destiny for her. Good preaching, Pastor Ron. Amen. 
We do the same thing. Shall I say, the devil does the same thing with us. And he will use a mother image, a father image, a brother image, a sister image. He will use the image of the person that you honor and love and respect so much that you choose to marry them and you get wounded. And whether the marriage ends in dissolution or not, even in a good marriage, we wound one another. And we have to be so careful that in that moment of human interaction that we're not making a conclusion or a judgment or coming to an opinion that is contrary to the word of God about humanity in general, but even more so about God the Father. Remember the principle, God ordained that man would reflect the glory of God. And Satan understood that, so he damaged the image of man and changed him into a fallen nature so that now man, instead of reflecting the glory of God, he would project his brokenness onto the image of God. You see, when I say the title of this series is Restoring the Image of God, it's not that God needs a campaign for someone to prop up his curb appeal. The problem is God's image in our eyes needs to be brought back into agreement with the reality of who God is. Can I get an agreement? Amen. We see in this passage that God reasoned with Sarah. You know, he will hear our hurts he will hear our pain. If you want to know what the real picture of God is, God heard Sarah laugh, and he heard Sarah lie about it, but the truth of the matter is, God is bigger than our failures, bigger than our mistakes, bigger than our shortcomings. And a year later, God visited Sarah, and Sarah conceived, amen. When God reasoned with Sarah and Abraham, and he said, what's the issue? You honestly think that I'm not big enough to be able to do something like this? You see, the word, <clears throat> well, the word of God tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11, I'm going to read this verse from the King James Version because of the word they use in the English. But I'm going to show you that whether you use this word from the King James or you use a corresponding word in the New International Version, when you go back to the Greek manuscripts, they all mean the same thing. See, in Hebrews chapter 11, 11, after God reasoned with Abraham and Sarah, the word of God tells us a historical note. Through faith also, Sarah received herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who promised. 
The enemy not only wants to accuse you to yourself, not only will he tell you that you're useless, you're worthless, you're no good, every time you slip or fall, he'll try to reindoctrinate you that you're not a new creation and you're nothing but a sinner, at best saved by grace. And he'll constantly try to spew up the vomit from his belly to change our image of us and to change our perception of how we think God sees us. The truth of the matter is, God has heard Satan's lies for so long, he's never moved by what the devil says. He's only moved by what he has to say. Oh, I think that deserved a much better amen. Not because I said it, because it's the reality of God. Can I get an agreement? Absolutely. The Bible says that if any man, any woman is in Christ, behold, the old has passed and all things have become new. In fact, this principle is so strong in God's heart that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul and moved his hand to keep writing. And Paul comes to a conclusion. And he says, therefore, I refuse to see anyone as it, who is born again after the flesh. I will see them as they already are in Christ Jesus. We need to do the same thing with the image of God. We need to revisit moments in our past and in our childhood where we've had negative interactions and question ourselves if that's become a period marker, a period in the sentence of our life. Did we come to a conclusion about life? Did we come to a conclusion about humanity? Did we come to a conclusion about men? Did we come to a conclusion about women? Did we come to a conclusion of people of this color or of that color, of this culture or that culture? Because God created humanity to reflect him and the devil's constantly using broken humanity to project our garbage Onto the image of God. And the only way we will ever see clearly is when we go back to the places where the enemy smudged the image of God through our human interactions. And we recognize the judgment. We recognize the opinion, the belief system, so that we can repent of that conclusion and the sentence of our judgment will be taken all of us, off of us, and we are released into the blessing of the truth. Amen. Praise God. Praise God. I find it amazing. I love watching the journey of humanity through the Word of God and how God will put a spotlight on someone and show us their calling, and then their failures, and then show us how God still completes what he said he would do. I can relate to those stories, and I can relate to a God who never gives up on us. Can I get an agreement? And so God reasons with Abraham and Sarah and says, come on, really, what's the issue? Uh, 
I created the constellations in the universe. In fact, the universe is like me. It's forever growing. It's never ending, always expanding. It is eternal. Do you honestly think that I could wave my hand, speak a word, and do that, and I can't put fruitfulness in your womb, Sarah? Do you honestly believe that I would speak a word only to tease you and to taunt you? And then to let you down? What is this conclusion that you've come to about me? Because I'm going to prove your conclusion wrong. At some point, Sarah revisited this whole disappointment in her mind. And Hebrews tells us that she came to a place where she had faith. And why did she have faith? Because she changed her judgment about God. The word judgment in the, in the Greek is the word, uh, let's pull it up here. And uh, I'm going to have trouble pronouncing this one, so there it is. It's on the screen. Have at it. And it means that she judged, she supposed, she thought, came to conclusions. She was of the opinion of. But she changed her negative opinion of God. She changed the negative image she fostered of God and she started to see God as a God who is faithful and if he's faithful, then he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Come on, church, let's hear it for God. Let me give you a personal example. My parents, back in 1967, answered a call from God to go as missionaries to Australia. There were a lot of Italian immigrants fresh off the boat uh, in Australia. A large population of, of Italians had migrated there. My father wasn't fluent in English, and yet he was called to the ministry. At this point in America, most Italians were now second generation, and the Italian language was becoming less and less their preferred language. And so mom and dad agreed that God was calling them to Australia and bundled up their three kids, and we got shipped to the other side of the world. Now, back in 1967, it took something like 24 hours of flight to go from New York all the way down to the island of Australia. Well, let me tell you how it had affected me. You see, as a little boy uh, coming from an Italian family, Thanksgiving, that was one of the times the whole family 34 cousins or whatever it is, we'd all come together, grandma and grandpa's country home. The kids would be playing football out on the field. The cold would be nipping at us. And uh, the ladies would be huddled in the kitchen, everybody cooking, everyone yakking, having fun, laughing. The men would be laughing. And just a great time of fellowship into the late hours of the night. But we didn't just do it Thanksgiving. We did it often. It was a treat to go to grandma and grandpa's house out in the country and know that all your 
uncles and aunts were going to be there, your cousins were going to be there. It just, the memory of it always brought these warm, fuzzy feelings to my soul. When we left America, I was barely nine years old. And I had a lot of questions for my mom and dad. Questions like, do they speak English there? To which my parents reassured us by saying, we don't know. <laughs> We'd ask them, do they have school there? And they'd say, we don't know. Where are we going to sleep? And they said, we don't know. Well, fortunately, the church had provided a house and provided beds and some of the necessities. We had an old refrigerator. And this is back in the days where in Australia, they still delivered milk to the house, but with a milkman with a horse and buggy. And the milk came in bottles, and you had real thick cream at the top of the milk and a little foil cap over the bottle. Anybody ancient enough to remember that? If you are, you don't want to put your hand up, right? <laughs> Our refrigerator was so unreliable that the fridge part of the, uh, of the, <laughs> of the unit would turn into a freezer, and in the morning when we'd go to get some milk out for breakfast, there would be a long cream popsicle projecting out of the bottle with a little foil cap sitting up on top two inches above the bottle itself. Australian homes, especially back then, were made of two walls of brick. And they didn't use drywall on the inside, which is a reasonable insulator. They would plaster like concrete right over the second layer of brick. So now you don't have a space between the outside wall and the inside wall, which also acts as an insulation. And so when the houses got hot in the summer, they got really hot. In fact, when we first moved to Australia, uh, this is the honest truth, uh, back in 1967, uh, to, to us, especially to me as a little boy from New York, this was like, wow, I can't believe this. When we first went to Australia, in the middle of the summer, everyone would sleep outside on the front lawn. They would even bring their TV outside, have it hooked up through an extension cord, and they'd be watching TV on the front lawn with their sleeping bags, and they would sleep outside because it was cooler outside in the night than it was inside the house. After three, four days of hot days, the house would become like an oven, and we didn't have air conditioning. They did not have, not just the Scarella household, they did not have air conditioning or central air conditioning or any kind of air conditioning back then. In the wintertime, the beds were so cold. And so some of the Italian families from the church taught my mom and dad what to do. You get a, an old brick, and you stick it in the oven for an hour and let it heat up. And then you take it out with oven gloves and you wrap it up in newspaper and you put it in the bed so it warms up the sheets. And these were some of the experiences I had as a child. I would wake up in the middle of the night, irrespective of the season, and find myself crying 
desperately because I would dream of my family back in America and I would be missing them and I'd wake up crying to which mom would usually come and have to console me and help me go back to sleep again. I really missed the family. And as a young kid, this distance, this journey, (laughs) this missionary venture, you know, we don't stop to think about the fact that when a, a husband and a wife are called by God, the kids pay a price also. But they usually have no say in the decision. And we don't think about a pastor's kids or his family, the pastors in this church, the workers in this church, their children also become extremely involved like I mentioned a few weeks ago with Pastor Carlos Rodriguez and how his kids are, they're part of the ministry just by virtue of mom and dad constantly being involved in the church. Well, the problem with bricks heated up in the oven and wrapped in paper, newspaper, is that occasionally if you left your foot on the brick too long while you're asleep, you get burnt. And so... Um, mom approached me one night, one day, with a proposition. Now, you have to understand. In the back of my head was this, the great consolation of being in Australia was that one day, we're only here for six years, and then we're going back to America. And we're going to be reunited with our family. And just before we happened to leave America, I got a bike. How many of you remember those big handlebar bikes with the banana seats? Uh, got a few responses. I had a big black bike with the handlebars and the big banana seat, and I would often console myself with the fact that one day soon we're going back home, and I'll have my bike, I'll have my cousins, I'll have my family, and we'll all be together again. Well, this particular occasion, mom approaches me and sits me down and says, Rob, I want you to just think about this. How many of you know that when an Italian mother tells you she wants you to think about something, she's telling you that's code. This is what you're going to do. No manipulation. She says, you know, we're all very cold at night. You know how you get very cold? I said, yeah. She says, well... Uncle Al offered to buy your bike for his kids. And we could use that money to buy an electric blanket for each one of us. And with a big smile on her face, she said, what do you think? Wouldn't that be great? (laughs) Thank God that at that age, I didn't know any choice words. But I had some very choice emotions, and they weren't positive. I remember distinctly thinking, why should I have to surrender something to provide for the whole family? Now remember, this is through the eyes and the perception of a nine-year-old. We come to conclusions from our point of view, 
And that's why it's not always right. Am I telling the truth here? You see, my mother was believing that the little boy inside of me would be big enough to see the huge benefit that everybody else would have. And all I could see was I left my grandma, my grandpa, my uncles and my aunts and my cousins, and now I have to surrender my bike as well because we're here in Australia. And I wasn't too keen on the idea. And mom said, well, you think about it a couple of, for a couple of days. And mom made sure she came and visited me after a couple of more cold nights and said, so what do you think? And I said, well, I don't really want to give up my bike. And mom started to give me reasons why it would be advantageous to surrender that bike. Now, before you come to any negative conclusions about my mom, I thank God for her. I thank God for my dad. They weren't perfect, and nor am I as a parent. After you're about 10, 12 years old, and you've had half a million uh, discipline uh, situations with your parents, you make a vow that when you grow up, you're not going to be a parent like them. And so I decided many times, I made a judgment and said, I won't do this to my kids, and I won't do that to my kids, and please don't ask my kids what they think of my parenting skills after church, because every one of them now has their own story. You see, what we can't prevent is the perspective in the other person's heart and emotions. And I came to the conclusion, well, this is how you serve God. You have to give up everything. And I made a judgment that if you're going to serve God, it has to be at the expense of everything. Do you know that's not a God conclusion? God will test us to see what his worth is in our heart. And he will sometimes ask us to give up everything. But the truth of the matter is, Hebrews 11, 11, anyone who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You see, as a young boy, to me, this was the image of ministry, and you just make sacrifice. And I concluded that to serve God nobly was to give up everything. I was already used to the fact. <laughs> I remember one time my mother said, you need to polish your shoes. And she picks my shoes up, and there are holes on the tops of the shoes. Now, we were, we're boys. I mean, we're rough. Uh, I grew up in the streets of Flushing, New York, and we would play tackle on cobblestone streets. And so at school, we would get pretty wild. And my mother was amazed. Why do you have holes on the top of your shoes and not on the bottom? And she flipped them upside down and saw these whopping big holes in my soles. And it was stuffed with paper. I would take the newspaper and fold it over half a dozen times and stick it there so that my socks wouldn't get ripped. And she said, why didn't you tell us? 
And I understood that they had made such a sacrifice to serve God, and this was our mentality. We had a mentality that was noble, that you give up everything to serve God, and God's worth it, and he is. And if you ever have to give up everything to pursue God, he's worth it. But the truth, the other side of the coin is, God is so worth it and so wonderful and so big and so glorious that he will give back anything you give, pressed down, shaken together, and running out all over. And so I had to come to a conclusion much later in life when I was in the ministry, and I had to come to a, a revelation a place where I had to face God and realize that I came to a conclusion about him and the ministry that doesn't line up with the word of God. And I realized as well that while I had that negative opinion and that negative judgment of God, my life was barren. And the day that I recognized the error of coming to a wrong conclusion and I repented to God in my heart without condemnation, without feeling judged, but realizing, wow, God's not like that. I misread the situation. And from the time that I was able to repent of that misrepresentation of the ministry and the father heart of God, the sentence that I was living under was broken and I was set free. Praise God. I'm going to ask the pastors in the church if they would start to come to the front and if uh, our musicians would come because we're going to have a time of ministry here this morning because most of us are like the rest of us and we all go through the same stuff. And the reason why history repeats itself is because fallen man is still fallen man and because the devil is still the devil. And so he plies his trade, his tactics, his manipulations on all of us to damage our personal image of God so that we come to conclusions that are not befitting who he is or what the word says. And as we make wrong judgments, we live under the sentence of what we've judged. And how like the devil, I mean how typical of an ugly, dastardly, sinister, creepy enemy that he'll poke you, wound you, hurt you so that you come to a misunderstanding about the other party and then he'll make you wear the sentence of that judgment as a garland around your head. Have I ever told you I hate the devil? And I love the fact that Jesus said he has come to set the captive free. Come on, stand with me. Pastor Jan would come to the front. Pastor Steve, if you would come. Pastor Carlos, if you can, that would be awesome. Uh, Lynn, if you would come, and Paul and Beth come, and Kathy, 
Solinsky, if you would come. I'm going to do two things as I conclude this morning. One of which is the altar will be open for ministry. Because my prayer is that you'll have a Sarah moment. And maybe as you've been hearing me preach last week and even this week and maybe throughout the course of the week, the Holy Spirit has started to put his finger on moments in your life that become the very reason why there's a blockage to your blessing. God wants to break the lie so that we can be set free from the very judgment we made. Man, it's quiet in here. Would it be appropriate to say good preaching, Pastor Ralph? Church, the best sermon isn't the one I'm preaching. The best sermon is the one that the Holy Spirit is putting his finger on in your heart. And sometimes the interaction with our parents is less than favorable. And sometimes our parents haven't been all that. Or our first love. Or our brother or our sister, or our uncle, or our cousin, or the man next door. And the enemy doesn't care who the authority figure is. All he cares is that you have a negative image of anyone who is older and anyone who is an authority because due to the principle of God, it will automatically project a negative image onto the character and the likeness of God. You see, God, when God put this in my heart to preach, it wasn't to judge anyone or to rebuke anyone. <laughs> he didn't come down and put it in my emotions and say, I'm angry with people and I want to I wanna let them have it. No. He softened my heart and said, I know people have thought wrongly of me because of hidden things in their lives they're not even aware of. And I want to bring them to the surface and bring them to their remembrance so that I can set them free from the snare, from the trap, from the net that the enemy has put around their lives. Isn't it amazing that we judge God incorrectly and yet he's the one who wants to come to our rescue and set us free. Amen. Amen. And so with all my heart, I, I know when God spoke into my spirit, the purpose of this series is not to judge us or to rebuke us, but to heal us and to set us free. Every eye closed. Holy Spirit, I pray right now. Only you can make the word of God personal to each and every one of us. 
And I pray that right across this auditorium that you are having conversations with all of us and bringing to our remembrance moments where the enemy got in. Times where the enemy spun a lie and caused us to come to incorrect conclusions, summations, opinions. Holy Spirit, right now, in the name of Jesus, peel back the shadows that hide those moments so that they can come to the surface and be dealt with so that we can be set free. I thank you, God, that you don't stand in judgment against us. You stand with understanding and love and acceptance. And as we stand in your presence, consciously acknowledging you're a good God, weed out all those hidden things in our emotions, in our thought life that have served as blockages between our picture of who you really are. Break down the walls, the lies, the arguments so that God, every one of your kids will be set free and grow in your blessings in the awareness of who you are. Where the enemy has stopped up the flow of your blessing, we break that in the name of Jesus and we expose that lying spirit so that the blessing of God and the healing of God and the restoration of God could flow into each person. I thank you, Dad, for the work that you are doing and are about to do. In Jesus' name. While every eye is closed, I want you to just slightly lift your hand if, if, if the Holy Spirit's been revealing moments in your life. Go on, raise your hand. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we start to speak your healing right across this congregation. We speak the wholeness of who you are into each person's heart. And I thank you, Holy Spirit, that seed, while it may not root immediately, it's not dead even though it's in the ground. And I thank you that the Word of God is seed. And over these next few days and the next few weeks, I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you will put your finger on any lie the enemy has held us captive to so that we can be set free. I'm going to open the altar. In fact, you could step out of the aisle and start coming down the front if you want one of these prayer partners to come into agreement with you. No one's here to counsel you or to condemn you, but to just come into agreement with you and to help bring the healing of God into your heart. The second thing I want to do this morning is something I do every Sunday, and that is if you have never asked Jesus Christ into your heart, why not? He's a wonderful God. He is the image of the Father. If you've backslidden, you've walked away, 
Today is the day of coming home. We sang that song earlier, welcome, welcome, welcome. All of heaven throws a party when anyone comes back to the Father. Would every eye close right now, if you have never asked Jesus in your heart, or if you have, and you've walked away, and you want to be right with him this morning, come on, put your hand up and say, Pastor, pray for me. Thank you. I see that hand. Who else? Thank you. I see that hand. God bless you. Who else? I see that hand. God bless you. God bless you. Father, continue to touch people's hearts here this morning. Continue to touch them and let them know how good you are and how much you care and how much you love them. Church, I'm going to ask every one of you to repeat this prayer with me. And those of you, especially if you raised your hand, this prayer is for you. I want you to repeat this prayer. And it's a prayer where we're going to say, God, I'm believing you love me. And I'm going to ask you to come in on my heart. Jesus, be in my life. So come on, church, everyone, let's just pray this prayer. And if you raise your hand, whether you're online watching through live stream or whether you're here in the building, uh, along with those hands that have been raised here this morning, I want everyone repeat after me. Dear God, I believe you care and you know everything about me and you still love me. Thank you, God, for sending Jesus Christ to die on that cross so that when I accept him, I am set free. Jesus Christ, I welcome you into my heart. Forgive me of all of my mistakes. Come live inside me. I receive you now because I know you receive me. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for being my Lord and my Savior. Amen. Amen. Praise God. I'm going to ask the team to start leading us in worship. Those of you who need to leave, that's fine. Those of you who want to come out the front and get ministry, come on out the front. And if you raised your hand this morning to ask Jesus in your heart, I'm going to be out the front as well. Come and see me. I want to pray with you. I want to talk with you. I want to tell you what God wants you to know this morning. And to all of us, as we move forward, we come into agreement, all of us, we come into agreement that the lies of the enemy will be exposed and the fullness of the glory of God will be restored to our understanding. And everyone said, amen, amen, amen. God bless you. God bless you, church. Thank you, team. I just want to I'm caught up in this holy moment I never want to leave See, 